This is an ABC podcast. There was this movie I watched with my kids when they were little, and it was called Cats and Dogs. And I remember it being quite silly and funny and entertaining all at the same time. And maybe that's because when you've got young kids, your threshold for entertainment drops precipitously. And the premise of this movie was that there's this secret war going on in our backyards between cats and dogs. Cats are scheming and evil, and they want to take over the world. Whereas dogs are more like the dim-witted good guys who are trying to save the planet. And this is what we do with animals. It's kind of fun to project our best and worst traits onto them. But the truth is that cats don't have much of a concept of the future beyond dinner time, and dogs have no use for honour or shame for that matter. And the concept of good or evil seems absurd when it comes to animals anyway. But if you do have animals in your life, you do sometimes wonder, what are they actually thinking? How do they think? It's a question that Justin Gregg has spent his life investigating. Justin Gregg is a science writer and a specialist in animal communication. And he's written a book that compares animal and human intelligence. And he thinks that human intelligence might be really, really overrated. He's wondering why if we're so smart, so much smarter than cats or dogs or dolphins, then how can we keep shooting ourselves in the foot with the technology we create? Justin Gregg's book is called If Nietzsche Was a Narwhal. Hi, Justin. Hello there. I love that introduction. Thank you. You live on what you call a hobby farm in Nova Scotia in Canada. What, what kind of animals have you got on the farm there? Um, I've, got, uh, I've got 10 chickens. Um, and so I also have some crows that I've been feeding. It's uh, about three generations worth of crows I've been feeding for 10 years. They greet me every morning. Uh, and then a cat and a, and uh, my my actual human family. And, and with chickens, chickens are actually kind of interesting if you watch them behave. Do you keep a close eye on how they behave and communicate with each other? An exceedingly worrying close eye, I have to say. I'm a bit chicken obsessed. <laughs> so I spend a lot of time concerned with what my chickens are doing and why they're doing it. What sort of things do you notice about them? Um, well, uh, anyone who's had chickens will tell you about the different personality that chickens have. You'll have some chickens that are very friendly and some are shy and aggressive. So that's fascinating. But me, I'm, I'm into communication, so I love watching the way they communicate with each other, and in particular my rooster, because he makes a specific call when I hand him some pasta, which he'll drop on the ground, and he'll make a food call to let the other hens know to come eat it. And so he'll drop it for them to eat. Uh, and I just love listening to those different calls that they make and try and figure out why they're making them in that moment. In comparing human and animal intelligence, one of the first points you make in your book is that one of the things that makes humans so distinctive is that we are always asking why. Now, on the face of it, it seems that this tendency to ask why and this ability to ask why gives us a massive biological advantage. It's given us pretty much everything we have in art and technology. What, what do you think of when it comes to this why tendency that humans have? Yeah, I, I mean, understanding cause and effect, like what causes something to happen? Why do things happen? That's the basis of science and technology and engineering. The, everything around us, this, the, you know, we're chatting online across the globe from each other. That's possible because of people asking why things happen. How does electricity work, for example? Uh, and obviously, it's one of the greatest things we've ever achieved. But the weird thing is, uh, humans have had the capacity for asking why ever since we were humans. So somewhere between, you know, 250,000 or 250 million thousand years ago, 250,000 and 40,000 is what I'm trying to say. It was a while ago. It was a while <laughs> back. The point is we spent most of that time not really asking why. We hadn't invented our technologies yet and our sciences yet. We were still uh, just like the chimpanzees that we live next to and all the other animals. We're working off basic learned associations to get by. So we didn't even though we had this capacity, we didn't use it because it wasn't that necessary for survival, just like it's not for my chickens or any other animal. You know, the story of Genesis and the expulsion of Adam and Eve from the Garden of Eden, that's sometimes seen as a, a metaphor for this tendency, that as soon as our, our brains evolved to a certain point to develop this why tendency, we were expelled from that easy communion with nature and cast out of Eden to a place where we're torturing ourselves by asking ourselves why all the time. Why is it like this? How can we change things? What do you think of that? That's an interesting, I never thought about that, but that is true. Um, the, well, the whyness, the question has brought us many amazing things, which are objectively good, you know, uh, medicine, 
is fantastic stuff. So yes, we may have been injected from that garden of, of not understanding, but we've brought beautiful things into the world uh, through that knowledge. But uh, there is a danger to it because the why answers that we've found, like nuclear technology, for example, can also make us extinct. And as climate change brought about by the combustion engine. So there is a danger to it as well. And in that sense, it might be almost like a biblical curse to be stuck with this asking of why all the time. You give us an example, the idea of walking in the woods. You might be going through the woods in Nova Scotia where you live and then be suddenly startled by some rustling sound. Tell me a bit about what the difference is in the way that a human reacts to that potentially dangerous sound that might be a bear compared to another animal. Yeah, I was walking in that example with a dog who heard that sound and was is a little bit scared and then ran behind the bush because maybe that dog had made this learned association between a sound like that and a predator behind the bush. So that's a that's a basic form of learning that all animals have. But me as a human, I can hear that same sound and then cycle through all these potential things that it could be. You know, oh, it could be a lumberjack or maybe aliens have landed behind that bush. So I should be extra <laughs> camp careful. Or I remember last week there was a, a murderer that escaped from jail and I wonder if that's him. You know, I'm cycling through all these other possibilities that animals can't do, um, which is powerful because it allows me to make a better decision about the relative danger of that sound than the dog. But if you really step back and look in that moment what the dog and I did, we both did the same thing, which was we jumped and moved back, and that was it. So even though I had all this amazing why knowledge in my brain about murderers and aliens, uh, the dog and I had the same most useful reaction. To back away and to be wary of, of what's going on there behind the bush. Yeah. But is the difference there that you have imagination and therefore you're able to cycle through these potential disastrous scenarios in your mind. Yes, and it's not to say that animals have no imagination whatsoever. Surely they must, but certainly a hallmark of the human mind is our ability to imagine an endless possibility of of reasons why something happened, of potential scenarios, because that's what we do. That's what makes us human. And so this imagination of imagining the future, what could be possible in the future, or imagining what it is that causes something to happen uh, that is that is basically the way humans think. And it's great. Like I say, most of the time it produces beautiful, amazing stuff and helps us with our decision making. You point out that humans quite rightly accumulate bazillions of bits and pieces of what are called dead facts, useless tidbits of information that aren't immediately useful to us, but just basically interesting. Is this at the core of this asking why that humans have? Is this at the core of the imagination that allows you to cycle through these potential threats that lie behind that bush. It's certainly related to it because because we can imagine so many different things that allows us to come up with, you know, that's how science works. What are the potential reasons for this? Let's let's make a list of all the things it could be and then test to see which it really is. So yeah, that's the basis for it. But of course, then our brains become overstuffed with useless information. Like I can name a bunch of Game of Thrones characters. How, you know, how is that in any way helping me make good decisions in my life? And so all, so we can become too cluttered with dead facts and then we become crippled and not good at making good decisions. Whereas dogs don't have to worry about Game of Thrones. They just get it done. So is it possible then that this remarkable ability that humans have, our ability to imagine how one thing could cause another thing, how that might lead us astray? Yeah, I mean, if you look on the internet these days, there's a lot of terrible information, and that's mostly people who have made a, a correlation uh, between two things based on causality that is that is wrong. Uh, humorism and some of the medical solutions that we've come up with in the past, and they were based on us thinking we understood why stuff happened, but getting it fundamentally wrong and yet still doing it for centuries and centuries. And I mean, even in modern medicine, I love this example of we used to think like I had an ulcer when I was a kid and we used to think ulcers were caused by stress. So I was, you know, told to relax, don't think so much. Uh, and now, of course, we realize ulcers are caused by a bacteria. So we fundamentally misunderstood what was causing, uh, even in modern times, something as basic as an ulcer. You were talking there about humorism, and this is an idea that was a the completely dominant idea in in medicine right up until the well, mid nineteenth century or so, which is that the body is made up of four primary humors, which was phlegm, yellow bile, black bile, and blood. 
and that these in turn corresponded to our temperaments and these in turn corresponded to the planets, to astrology, astronomy and so on and so on and pretty much everything in the universe. Tell me about how this might lead to what you call chicken butt solutions. What is the chicken butt solution you're, you're <laughs> writing of here, Justin? Yeah, that, that was a particular story from, um, it was from medieval Wales. I was, I was imagining the scenario where a young boy was bitten by a, uh, an adder, which you have in Wales, and um, it's poison, it's venomous, and you will, you will die from it potentially. And so the, the solution, according to humorism at the time, was because it was a boy, uh, you would pick the, pick the roosters out of the butt, uh, the feathers out of the butt of the rooster. So you had like a naked rooster butt. And then you'd rub that against <laughs> the snake bite wound, and that would extract the poison. Uh, and, and so people would do that. And see, <laughs> the thing is, like, you're looking for cause and effect. So you think you understand why it happens. And then imagine you did that to the boy and he survived. Then you'd be like, it worked. And so you, you figured out the cause. Uh, but, of course, sometimes he would die. And then you'd have to come up with a different explanation. But it just it seems bonkers now. But at the same time, Lord knows what I'm doing in this exact moment, which is equally as bonkers that 100 years from now, a pharmacist will be like, what was this guy taking that drug for? It did the opposite of what he thought it was. You know. you got chickens and roosters on your hobby farm. You've never been tempted. You've never been tempted to rub a chicken's butt on some kind of open wounds, uh, Justin, after discovering this? I'm going to be perfectly honest with you. I have not, and I'm glad. To, I'm glad because I'm. I feel better for not having done that. But I do. I do love like. Uh, like I sit with this one chicken on my lap, and she goes to sleep, and I pet her, and it's very. Uh, it's very therapeutic. But her butt is. Uh, no, no part of her butt is touching my skin. It seems then that we have this capacity. Humans have a capacity for medium-term thinking, but not long-term understanding. Is the internal combustion engine? Um, a good example of this, Justin. Yeah, I mean, the the problem with the long-term thinking is like we can think medium and long-term. Like you and I can both imagine what the world might be like a hundred years from now. And we can both plan for our retirement. Uh, I don't know if you are, but you probably should. We all should. Uh, so we can think about the future. It's just the problem with the combustion engine is that our psychology, human psychology, all animal psychology isn't designed to really feel how important the future is, it's designed for feeling how important it is right now to get food, to go to sleep. Uh, those are the things that our brains are tuned into. So even though on paper we understand the future, we don't have an emotional response to it that's as deep as we do to the moment. So the combustion engine, as we know, is out there like spitting a bunch of uh, you know pollutants into the atmosphere, and that's bad for uh, climate change. Uh, so um, we should probably stop using it like we know the solution. But the problem is like that's in the future. And in the moment, we have to drive to work. So, of course, we're going to keep doing that because the now is more important to us than the future. Like I said, you're a specialist in animal communication and you're a researcher for something called the Dolphin Communication Project. Tell me how you are, you're able to research the way dolphins communicate with each other. Yeah, that it, in our organization, we research dolphin-to-dolphin -dolphin communication. So we want to know, indeed, how they, they communicate with each other. So we have a camera that we, uh, we go underwater with. So it's an underwater camera with a couple of hydrophones, so underwater microphones attached to it. Uh, and we go into a few research sites. Uh, there's one in the Bahamas. Um, I was out in Japan for a while, and those were with wild dolphins. And so you get in the water on these tourist boats when there's dolphins swimming around. And you follow them with the camera and you sort of record their natural behavior underwater and record their sounds that they make when they're making behaviors. Just like my chickens, what you'll find is that you hear a certain sound in a certain context with the dolphin. And then you try and figure out, well, why were they making that sound in that context? What was it about? Uh, and because dolphins are underwater and they make very high frequency sounds, you have to have specialized equipment to even record it. What kind of things are they saying to each other? It's it's for the most part some standard animal communication stuff like you're talking about like mate with me don't mate with me come over here go away I hate you I like you you know your your general things that you and I could communicate um, uh, without even using language but dolphins do have a weird capacity to understand symbol systems both in the lab uh, and in the wild we find that they use a, a specific kind of symbol called a signature whistle which functions a bit like a name. So each dolphin, you, you might have heard of this, they, a lot of this has been researched in Australia as well, where you'll have a dolphin that will make a whistle that's unique to just that dolphin, and it'll, uh, therefore you can identify that dolphin when they make that whistle, and sometimes they will whistle that name of their other friends. So the name functions a bit like a label, uh, like a word, like a symbol, and so that 
is rare in the animal kingdom to have something like that. Has there been any attempts to facilitate dolphin-to-human communication to try and teach dolphins a kind of language that we can use to have something beyond the most basic forms of communication with them? Yeah, so there were some famous experiments in the 60s with John Lilly that sort of kicked it all off, uh, where he was he brought a dolphin into a, a house, an actual house, that was flooded with a couple feet of water, and, and there was someone trying to teach that dolphin to speak English. It didn't work. In a house flooded with water. That's correct. Yeah. So there was just a, there's a woman there and, uh, and she, her job was to hang out with this dolphin who's swimming around in a couple feet of water. She was just in a chair and she would try and get it to the, the dolphin to count. Uh, it, it did not, it did not, it failed spectacularly <laughs> as what happened. Um, but <laughs> it's pretty wacky. But when you say it, it, it didn't work, right? The dolphin just wasn't interested. Well, could not or wasn't interested in communicating. Well, it was. The dolphin was. They're very social and it was interested, but they, they don't have a vocal track that, you know, they're making whistle sounds through the nasal passages in their head and they can't really replicate. English sounds. That's that bonkers. It's never going to work. Oh, oh, she was trying to teach him to talk. Yes, like yes. There are recordings oh, of the right. dolphins like screaming, and they're like, the dolphin is counting. I'm like, I don't know if that's, I don't know what that sound is. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but, but once they, but later on, they, they started doing different things like you did with the great apes, where they would, they would invent these symbol uh, systems where they would show dolphins like either hand gestures or, or visual symbols that the dolphins could then learn. And it turned out, wow, actually dolphins are quite skilled at, at understanding these artificial symbol systems, which was pretty cool. Um, so they, dolphins then rank up there with the great apes and, and, and the parrots and some of these other species when it comes to using symbol systems. I suppose the assumption behind that is that humans are at the top of the tree and all ad other advanced animals want to be like us. That's going to be a flawed assumption, isn't it? Well, that's the assumption that drives me a bit bonkers um, uh, because we're always only seemingly fascinated with animals when they act like us. I understand it on one hand because like, we want to know how different we are to other species or how similar they are to us. But it also, like you're saying, it it's automatically puts us in this category of, well, we're better, we're the best, and let's see if anyone else is as good as us. And we don't appreciate an animal if it can't do human-like stuff. Not only should we not do that, but let's reevaluate human intelligence altogether because are we even so sure it's a good thing? Because look how stupid we are most of the time. Is this one of the reasons why cats and dogs are so successful as a species is that they've learned to mimic certain things that we might mistake for being human? Um, but dogs especially. I mean, if you look at the domestication of dog species, like with the way that their little eyebrows work and we make them with these big eyes, we've sort of infantilized them and made them into creatures that are very human and baby-like. And so therefore we like them because they're cute and they're nice. And they've, they've learned how to interpret our signals like they can understand our, the direction our eyes are pointing. They're really good at understanding a lot of different vocabulary words. They understand the pointing gesture. So we've literally... Uh, bred them to be able to be responsive to human stuff, which is of course why we like them. Why we like cats, I don't know. I have a cat and he just tears me to shreds every day and I still love him. And <laughs> Lord knows what that relationship is about. It's unhealthy. There are plenty of videos on the internet of a dog that's just torn apart a cushion or a pillow and, and left, you know, a gigantic sort of terrible mess in the house and the, the owner is scolding the dog and the dog's sort of looking up with sad eyes, you know, hence the expression hang dog expression, as though the dog's ashamed of what it's done. The dog has no shame in that moment, does it? It's, 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 it's kind of crazy to ascribe sh a concept like shame to a dog in that moment. It, it may be, and that example that you're talking about is exactly one that I show on the very first day of my animal uh, minds class, where there's this dog, Denver, on YouTube, and he looks so shameful that he's torn, like he ate the something that he shouldn't have eaten or whatever. Uh, and so I asked my students what's going on, and they're all like, yeah, you know, he feels, he feels shame, he feels regret. He's embarrassed. Uh, and then I teach them about what submissive behavior looks like in a dog and that there's a lot of research where if you just stand over a dog and yell at the dog and look angry, even if the dog has done nothing wrong, it will do those same exact behaviors. It will, its head will droop down. It will look at you with those sad eyes. It will lick its chops. That's just basic behavior of a dog that's trying to not have you hurt it. And so it's, it can't therefore be shame if the dog hasn't done something wrong. The other sort of dubious gift of the human imagination is the human ability to lie. Many animals do practice deception, however, like they use camouflage or mimicry 
to help them eat or to escape a predator, they often pretend to be something they're not, don't they? Is that the same thing as lying? Um, no. So you would have uh, deception is pretty widespread in the animal kingdom, like you say with this mimicry or false camouflage. Uh, that's pretty standard animal communication stuff. But when you get to lying specifically, you add on a couple cognitive sprinkles to the human mind that make that possible, uh, mostly theory of mind. So if I can guess what you're thinking or if I can guess what you might believe, I can then produce false information with the express intent of getting you to believe something that's not true. Uh, and that is what lying is. And it's very likely that animals, for the most part, except for maybe a handful of cases, don't do that at all because they're not that interested in what other animals are thinking or believing. They get by just fine without needing to know that. Therefore, they don't need to lie in that manner. You give the example of an Australian male cuttlefish, how that practices deception. Can you explain how that cuttlefish goes about deceiving when it's out and about and in the world? Yeah, that's one of the best examples of tactical deception that's almost as sophisticated as lying. So you'd have a small male cuttlefish, let's say, that wants to mate with a female, and then a larger male cuttlefish off in the distance. So if the large male is around, the small one is not going to get a chance to mate with that female because the, the large male is in control. So the small male will do this funny thing where it'll sort of sandwich itself between the male and the female. And they have these uh, patterns on their skin that communicate lots of information, including uh, their sex. So whether or not it's male or female will depend on the pattern. And so the, the little male that's trying to woo the female will go up to her. And on one side that's facing her, he will have all these like beautiful, like come mate with me, I'm amazing patterns. And on the other half that's facing the large male, he'll have a pattern that says, I'm a female. So if the male, the big male is looking over, he's like, oh, there's just two females <laughs> hanging out. No problem. Nothing to see here. Meanwhile, the little male is busy trying to get, you know, this female to follow him off behind a rock or whatever they do. And so it seems as if that small male is trying to fool the big male. Like he understands what that male is looking at and trying to fool him. So that's a, a very sophisticated case in the animal kingdom of, uh, of a deception. So strike one for the little guy there. But in this case of tactical deception, as you say, are you saying the differences between a human and a creature like this cuttlefish is that a human in attempting to deceive through lying will go, this person thinks this and therefore I will say and do this to mislead them. Yes. Whereas the cuttlefish has no theory on what the other male cuttlefish is thinking. It doesn't think, oh, if I camouflage myself to look like another female, then he'll go away and he'll be deceived. It, it has no need for that. It's just some kind of imprinted, baked-in defence system, if you like. It, it, could be, it could be baked in in the sense that, like, he, uh, that fish will know, the cuttlefish will know, like, always display this signal when facing a male. So it's not really thinking about what that male is thinking about at all. Or maybe even they have learned, it's possible, they've learned how to do that by watching other cuttlefish or just by living life. Uh, but they still don't necessarily need to be thinking too hard about what that big male is is thinking about. And there's lots of experiments in, in with, maybe not with cuttlefish, but with chimpanzees and dolphins where you're trying to figure out if they really do know or are making guesses as to what other animals are thinking. And sometimes you find, especially with, primates maybe but a lot of the time not and it just seems like it's not important for other animals to really care that much about what other animals are thinking but they get by fine without that knowledge the next level above lying and i'm using this as a technical term is bullshitting and that's now a technical term as you as you say yes can you explain the difference between lying human lying and human bullshit please just uh, the the difference is lying is when you know what you're saying is false uh, so I'm specifically trying to get you to believe something false that I know is false. But bullshitting is when you don't really care. You're just trying to put as much information out there. Some of it's true. Some of it's not. Who cares? Whatever. Flood the market with nonsensical information. And it's usually for a political goal or some social goal to get ahead in the world. Because bullshit is very difficult for the general public to sift through to figure out what is real and what is not real. So someone who's a skilled bullshit artist usually does quite well in things like business or politics. That, that, that's not just me. That's truth. There's science and research to show that that's the case. People, people appreciate and understand and think of them as skilled socially and politically. Are you saying they're admired, secretly admired or not so secretly admired? 
I yes, the research seems to show that um, people people appreciate when when a bullshitter does what they do. Uh, they think of them as politically savvy. There's a sort of like savviness that we ascribe to people like that, which we would rather have a savvy person in charge of us than a very boring truth teller, it seems. Because in, in there's weird studies in corporate culture where people seem to want to promote bullshitters ahead of regular, boring, everyday, honest people. In Russia, famously, they have these mi misinformation a whole like uh, conglomerate set up and their whole job is to put misinformation out onto the internet to mess with like the US political system or whatever uh, because they know that as well. It is and it it works quite well, obviously, because we like bullshitters, but it also just confuses the general public. And only humans have this capacity because we have language, we have the ability to lie and to bullshit. Uh, and and it is exceedingly dangerous because the politics gone wrong with too much bullshit out there. Uh, it creates dangerous, volatile social circumstances where large nation states can justify invading other nation states, and it, that's not good for us. Podcast, broadcast, and online. This is Conversations with Richard Feidler. Find out more about the Conversations podcast. Just head to abc.net.au slash conversations. The human gift for lying that we were just talking about, Justin, for inventing false worlds. The upside of that seems to be the gift of fiction. Books, movies, untrue things that illustrate larger truths. I, I suppose that's the upside of the human capacity to lie. Absolutely. And that's, I, you know, my, I live my whole life inside these fiction worlds. I love sci-fi. I love watching movies on Netflix. My whole life is about these lies, these fake worlds. And that's that's exactly everything that's problematic about human intelligence in a nutshell, which is we have an ability that can produce such beauty, some poetry, fiction. It's absolutely amazing. But it also produces the conditions for, uh, like we were talking about before, which is so dangerous politically. So everything that's wonderful about human intelligence is also potentially a danger and even an extinction-level kind of danger for our species. It was commonly believed for a very long while, right up to the 60s, I think, that humans had the gift of higher intelligence, that we had souls, I suppose, and animals were kind of like natural robots of a kind that really didn't have inner lives. Everyday people, though, who live among animals knew that wasn't true. They just knew that wasn't true, particularly when they were able to witness what can only be described as animal grief, the way animals can be seen to be apparently grieving over a dead family member or a friend or a loved one. Tell me the story about the grief of a killer whale, an orca named Taliqua, that was observed uh, some years ago. Yeah, this was a, a particularly tragic story of uh, Taliqua was a, a killer whale whose infant was born dead. Uh, and so she held it up on her beak, on her rostrum, on her head, uh, to keep it above water. And that's a behavior you often see with uh, all dolphin species. Killer whales are a dolphin species. Uh, after a, a newborn calf is born and it's alive, they'll push it toward the surface. But if it dies, they'll also sort of keep it toward the surface. But in her case, she carried it around on the top of her head for weeks at a time, which is very unusual. And during that time, she was not eating. So she was she was doing everything that looked as if she were suffering with grief. She were sad about the death of her calf until eventually the calf one day, finally she let it go and she started eating again and now she's better. And so it looks so much like human grief that many scientists would say, yeah, that's an example of grief. But that gets into the question of, well, what is, how do we define grief as a scientist? Were the scientists that were observing this behavior moved by it? Mm. 
during the radio uh, interviews uh, that they gave, they were in tears a lot of the time. And, you know, scientists like myself were supposed to be not moved by this stuff, but we're humans. And I've, I've witnessed the death of some of my dolphins that I've been studying, and it is profoundly uh, sad. So, yeah, uh, they were they were moved by her displays of grief for sure. And is it just the mother or were other family or social group members participating in this, what seems to be some kind of a, almost a ritual of grief? Yeah, there were moments when other of her family group would hold the calf as above water as well, so she could go off and maybe try and get some food. So, so yeah, it was a group grief kind of situation. Not all scientists are are okay using that term, but there are good arguments to be made that that is the appropriate term. But then it gets into that deeper question: Well, what is grief? But then, what do animals understand about death? Is it possible that there's no grief involved here at all? That the mother is just hedging her bets in case this possibly comatose child will revive at some point? Or are there signs of anguish in the animal? Yeah, well, that's the million-dollar question because you can explain it away more simply as like, well, she was just hoping it would pop back to life or maybe it was just some instinct to push it above water that had misfired and gone wrong for so long. And so you, in in my field, you're always having to choose between the simple cognition explanation or the complicated one and sometimes you have to jump through a lot of hoops to justify the simple explanation in this case it like i can't think of a particularly convincing argument that she <laughs> didn't understand that her calf was dead and that she just kept up that behavior it just seems it doesn't it doesn't hold as much water as as grief being in the explanation you hear all kinds of stories of elephants wailing over a dead calf and other stories like horses horses seem to like having interspecies friendships, like having a chicken in the stable with them and the, the chicken dies or goes away, they, they seem terribly upset and quite, quite at a loss. Clearly there uh, is some kind of sense of loss when an uh, animal family member dies, but I wonder what we can know about what's creating that sense of loss. Um, is it possible that they're thinking, of, I can no longer have this child with me in the future? Yeah, that's exactly it. You might, An animal might have uh, what uh, philosopher Susanna Monceau would call a minimal concept of death. And that is to say that, that that calf or that chicken that's disappeared or is dead on the ground, they might understand that it is dead. They have a category for dead in their minds, which is it used to be moving around and alive, and now it's not, and it seems like it never will again. It's not a living thing anymore. And then the grief comes from like, well, that's sad because I was enjoying when it was alive, and now it's not going to anymore. And that can be grief. It's not a sophisticated understanding of death. That animal might not understand that they themselves might die or that every other animal is going to die one day and that that's inevitable. Because uh, that's a human style of death wisdom. But they certainly would understand a little bit the minimal idea of what death is, and that is sad. Do we know if animals are capable of entertaining the thought or the worry that I will die one day? I mean, themselves, that is. That's an open question, but I think most philosophers and cognition uh, folks would say that maybe not. Uh, because to have that capacity... To have a level of self-awareness that involves projecting yourself far into the future and realizing that one day you couldn't possibly survive 100 years, there's a lot of sort of sophisticated cognitive architecture required for that level of un understanding, um, personal mortality. Uh, it's certainly possible after witnessing other, you know, a chimpanzee watches a lot of chimpanzees die that they can imagine what that death might be coming for them, at least fear it, but maybe not know that it's inevitable. That seems to be, most people, I think, would argue, a particularly human trait. Yeah. Animals don't seem to be haunted by the thought of their mortality. And this is one of the pleasures of having a cat in your life, is watching it stretch out and bask in a square of sunshine, enjoying that and living in the moment, unhaunt, not haunted by troubling memories from the past, troubling thoughts of what may lay, lie in the future, including its own death. It seems to be that that's the blessing animals have over humans, and that seems to be a kind of a lesson we want to learn in having them in our lives. Like you, you, you see a cat do that, and you go, I've got to learn to do that more. I've got to learn to live in the moment and not have my buzzing mind range around backwards and forwards through time so much. What, what do you think, Justin? 
that seems to be it. I mean, we, we know for sure that most animals do think about the future. Maybe it's the, the, the near future, not, not, or maybe a day or two down the road. So your cat probably is thinking about later on a little bit. But for the most part, they're not thinking about their own deaths or you know what their retirement is going to look like in 30 years. Uh, they don't seem to do that. And yeah, that is the question. Humans do do that. And that produces a lot of good because that allows us to want to create science and technology, but also to create art. A lot of the, resp the cultural responses that we have to this inevitability of death are arguably producing uh, beautiful things. Um, and then the million dollar question is, would we be better off? Like you're saying, as our cat stretching in the sun, in the sun, like a, some sort of like Buddhist on steroids, that's only ever in the moment. And is that better or not? That's an, I don't know the answer to that question. Personally, it does sound pretty good to me. Um, but I don't know. Yeah. It's, I'm sure you, one of the reasons perhaps you, you want to write a book and is that you part of the thinking is that you know it's going to sit on a shelf it's going to outlast you and maybe your kids will read it and be remembered by you it will and other other people will remember you after you're gone that's that immortality drive that's haunted by what you call the death wisdom that is unique to humans that yes absolutely it's an immortality project it is a thing that that has been created by me that will live on after I die. And that's certainly, you're right. It's in the back of my mind for writing a book like this is that like long after I'm gone, I could have great, great grandkids that want to read the book about their weird old, uh, you know, Nova Scotian farm ancestor. So that does drive me to do things. It drives a lot of people to do things. And that's not necessarily a, a bad thing. Yes, but uh, this immortality project, uh, writing a book is a lovely and fine thing, but the other people who've had Im immortality projects are Genghis Khan, Napoleon, Adolf Hitler, Joseph Stalin. This is the flip side of this longing for immortality, isn't it? Well, that that's exactly it. Like everything else, it's a double-edged sword. Everything that in the past is people trying to make a name for themselves, and sometimes it's through good stuff, and a lot of the times it is not. Uh, so it drives good and bad things, as always, for humans. This is all very subjective, but do you think animals have a better relationship to death than humans? That's a good question. Uh, it comes down to whether or not knowing you are inevitably going to die is good or not. Uh, I, I, I think that they are better off with their relationship with death uh, than we are. Seeing the moment when my young daughter realized that her death was inevitable was absolutely heartbreaking. And if there could be a way to live life uh, and have avoided that, I would love to have had that happen. Then we come to another big difference insofar as that humans operate within ethical systems. They look for moral guidance. Well, many people do and not all the time, not everyone and not all the time. But nonetheless, this does seem to be a distinction. But isn't it true nonetheless that animals like chimpanzees live in societies that seem to be based on rules that seem to be operate within rules-based systems? So most animals will have normative systems. So things that they either learn or are born knowing about what is and isn't allowed. Uh, and so they will have these strong emotional reactions to what being treated unfairly, for example, when, when you know, Famously, in the book, I talk about the monkeys receiving different food rewards. So an experimenter gives one uh, capuchin monkey uh, a, a piece of cucumber, and then the other one gets a much tastier treat for, for doing the same activity. And the one who's receiving the lame cucumber gets so angry about it because they're being treated unfairly that they throw away their food reward and bang on the cage. So there's this sense of fairness that's sort of built into them. Uh, so those are normative systems, and they guide most animal behavior. But for humans, we can take those normative systems about fairness or whatever and think about them, write them down, turn them into laws, turn them into moral or religious codes, and then come up with really complicated systems about what is and isn't allowed, uh, and then commit terrible atrocities while trying to enforce those moral systems. And animals don't do that. The human instinct towards justice is a wonderful thing, but unless it's leavened with compassion it becomes quite catastrophic. It's often said that the worst crimes that have been committed in the history of the world have been perpetrated by those operating out of an outraged sense of self-righteousness. This is true in the Third Reich. 
The Third Reich justifies its genocidal practices by framing it in the language, it's them or us. We have to do this. This is a favour we're doing the world. We'll be thanked for this hard task somewhere down the track. Is that how you see it, Justin? Yes, because any sort of government or political or cultural system or ideology is didn't pop out of nowhere. It is there because people are able to justify what they're doing on some sort of moral ground, whether or not it's religious-based or a secular philosophical reasoning. They, they believe what they're doing is right for some reason, and that's true of everything that humans have ever done. And if you just start cataloging all the things that humans have done, you find out like, oh, yes, we invented the Third Reich. That was bad, you know, or the Crusades. That wasn't very pleasant. Like pretty much every example of humans committing these large-scale atrocities are rooted in us thinking we're doing the right thing and being able to justify it on moral grounds. We seem to need that too. It's not like... Hitler and the SS and the Third Reich said, ha, 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 we're going to do this wicked, evil thing. It was, humans seem to need that moral justification to take what they feel like taking. I think, it, I can't imagine a human just sort of walking around without any thoughts of why they're doing what they're doing or some justification for what they're doing. I think, you know, maybe some weird serial killer, but, but your average person has some justification whether or not it's delusional or or just cruel they have an, a justification for what they are doing we have this moral sense which allows us to obviously do amazingly empathic beautiful compassionate things but when it goes wrong we can justify terrible savagery the biggest difference it's often said between humans and other animals is that we're said to have a higher degree of consciousness and that's such an interesting word consciousness i think if i'm being honest justin if i'm trying to imagine what when i say something like that and and to believe it's true i think i'm imagining my consciousness as a magical thing it's an odd thing to say i, I sort of imagine my mind in an abstract sense ranging around what i see here or the the, the the senses in which i used to participate in the world and to be able to put all sorts of things together reach out and touch things almost in a tactile way and put them together in my head in new and different and interesting ways as a human being in a way that animals can't do we have any real definition of consciousness these days how are we going with all that <laughs> that's a great question no uh, it's there's a definition whatever scientist or philosopher you are you probably have your own definition for it there's no universally accepted definition when we use the word consciousness like you're trying to describe it now we we don't we're not 100 percent clear what we mean we think it means a lot of different things uh, so all right let's strip it all back to a very basic uh definition which some people use which is just having subjective experience like if you have an experience of anything like uh pain or a, a flavor any experience, vision, seeing, hearing, that experience itself is consciousness. It doesn't require complicated thinking or even self-awareness. Uh, it's just simply being able to experience anything. And that's pretty universal. So as I argue, and a lot of other people argue, um, it, that you can find that in insects. You say that humans are not more conscious than other animals. We're just conscious of more things. Is that, is that right? I think that's a good way to put it because we have our complicated forms of self-awareness, including the awareness of my mind. And like I was saying before, where I'm guessing what's inside of your mind, I have an awareness of your mind. So I'm consciously aware of these different kinds of social minds, and therefore I can think about them. We can think about our own thinking more so than other species. So we just simply on that sort of stage of consciousness, we have a lot more actors on there that we can think about. So an insect, it doesn't have theory of mind. It can't think about other minds. So therefore, it's not conscious of those concepts. So it's conscious, just not of that stuff. So that's why I say we're just conscious of more things. That's what makes humans humans. Years ago, I interviewed this a scientist who works for the Queensland Brain Institute, who's looking at bee cognition. He was fascinated with the fact that a bee with a tiny, tiny mind can pick a hole and th fly through, can navigate its way through it with such a tiny brain. And after years of research, he concluded that a bee is able to measure how far it's travelled by how much scenery it's flown past. The idea is quite simple. If something's very close to you, it, it whizzes by your visual field very rapidly. And if something's very far away, 
it doesn't really move very much at all. And using that data, it, it cues how far away different objects are. I, I wonder if this, the difference here then, as you say, is that like humans are good at a lot of different things and we do a lot of different things very well, but at B, that's stripped down and seriously fit for purpose in a way perhaps we're just not. That's a good way to put it. It's a stripped down version because there's beautiful experiments about bees solving problems uh, that are not things that they would come across in their world. Uh, so they do have some flexibility in their thinking based on their kind of consciousness. But for the most part, you're bang on, which is they're fit for purpose. They've got a, a small subset of things that they do and that they need to be aware of. Whereas humans are generalists, like crows, uh, for example, or dolphins, uh, we need to be able to solve more bigger problems. So we have the ability to think about more things, to be consciously aware of more things. But all of us that I just mentioned, all those species, have some level of subjective awareness. When I was a kid, I got bitten on the hand by a dog and it made me sort of naturally fearful of large barking dogs. One day when I was in my oh, late teens, I was riding my bike to uni and a couple of big dogs came out of nowhere barking really fiercely and chasing me on my bike and I, I sort of panicked and tried to leap on my, try, tried to get my bike to leap over the gutter and of course it, it just went in the air and I landed flat on my back and when I looked up the two dogs were looking over me and I swear to God they were laughing I really do I swear to God they're laughing I, I've seen videos of like an orangutan laugh at a magic trick do animals have humour? Do animals enjoy paradox or is, or is it just the misfortune of others in the case of those dogs? What do you think, Justin? I, You know, I suspect that they do. I've seen those same videos of magic tricks being shown to orangutans and other monkeys and things. And when you see animals playing, uh, so playing is, is very uh, universal, um, they seem to be having fun. Uh, and so having fun, play, that's universal. Humor, that requires something weird, like this understanding of violation of expectation, you know, like you, something new and weird happens and maybe it's funny. I don't know if dogs have humor, but I can't imagine why not, because if it's nothing more than a dog is expecting something <laughs> to happen and something something happens that's unexpected and that's uh, that's immu that's interesting to them, it piques their interest, why, why not have that piqued interest be laughter? <laughs> Well, these bastard dogs were effectively watching me slip on a banana skin, Justin. I think yeah. they were laughing at my misfortune. <laughs> well, I will, as a scientist, I will conclude, yes, those dogs were 100% <laughs> making fun of you because it was foolish. <laughs> the, the title of your book is If Nietzsche Was a Narwhal, and you're talking there about the famous German philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche, and there's a very powerful story about Friedrich Nietzsche. He was a man who preached the coming of a new kind of human down the track. A kind of, he was really, in some ways, the first transhumanist. Hmm. He thought that at some point we were, we were striving towards a higher kind of human and we should be part of that striving rather than be mediocre and bland. And pity for him was some contemptible overhang from Christianity. He wrote quite scathingly about pity. Nonetheless, there was this incident in his life that that was followed by a total a total kind of mental and nervous breakdown. Can you d just relate that incident with the horse that Friedrich Nietzsche underwent? Yes, this was when he was living in Turin and, and his mental health had been declining for a while, even though he's, he's writing a ton of books still. Um, and he was walking... This, this story may or may not be true, but it goes like this. He was walking in, uh, in a piazza somewhere uh, and he saw a horseman whipping his horse, either to get the horse to go faster or to do something. And he was so overcome with pity, and he threw his arms around the horse's neck, and, and he collapsed. And that was the last moment when he was so coherent. He became sort of incoherent and ended up in an insane asylum eventually. So those were his last moments, and it was brought about by uh, watching someone be mean to a horse. And that, that's why I chose him for that story, and because he wrote about how he envied animals for being so... Uh, stupid sometimes that they couldn't think about their future and their past. He envied them, but he also pitied them because it was too bad that they couldn't think about their future or their past. So he was he was just a bunch of contradictions when it came to animals. The fact that he he had a breakdown in this moment of tearful compassion is terribly moving to me. So the question is then, I suppose, if Nietzsche were an animal like a narwhal, would he have been better off? We can't know, of course, but what do you think, Justin? My gut says, for him in particular, yes. He 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 was not a well man, and he certainly probably had some um, some causes for his mental issues. But he also was a philosopher who dealt with nihilism and all these really dark 
concepts. Uh, and he seemed- He was also in a menage a trois and one and two members of that menage a trois took off without him. That, that, that'll- uh, That'll mess th- you up, yeah, for sure. That'll mess you up a bit too, for sure. Yeah, yeah but, but, but he was generally just mis- miserable. And he questioned this himself, and I questioned this about him. Like, had he been your cat sitting in the sun, would he have been so miserable? I, I doubt it. Uh, would his life have been better? He probably would have experienced much more pleasure. Um, so then the question is, is all this output that he has given us as a philosopher, was it worth all of that misery? And I can't make that call, but I, I, I know for sure uh, for him, he just, I don't know, he would have been better off as a narwhal or a cat, I would imagine. So this is the trade-off that brings us back to the expulsion from the Garden of Eden. We can't live in the Garden of Eden like an animal or a plant or something like that. We can remember the past, we can anticipate the future, we can imagine all kinds of things, we can create arts, we can create science, but we're burdened by this knowledge that tends us towards depression and anxiety and all those things. That's the trade-off. It's like if God came along and said, you can have all that you, in order to have these things, you're also going to have to carry this stuff with you. Yeah, that's it. I mean, that ship has sailed. Like you said, we, we have it. Uh, it's with us and we can't get rid of it. And the question is going forward, acknowledging that this exists and that we often make bad choices, are we going to be able to keep it together, make the right decisions and solve the big problems that we have in the world at the moment? I think specifically the uh, climate emergency and other things, um, because that requires us to really get over all of these cognitive biases and psychological pitfalls that we as humans have uh, because of our intelligence. Are we intelligent enough to beat our own intelligence? So this is a call for humility? Yes, it's a call for humility, absolutely. To acknowledge that animals living these simple lives uh, without all this overthinking of things uh, are making the world, aren't making the world a bad place like we are. And to respect them for, for in a way, thinking less compli- complicatedly about the world. It's been wonderful speaking with you and fascinating, Justin. Thank you so much. Yeah, this has been great. Thanks for a great conversation. Justin Gregg is the author of If Nietzsche Were a Narwhal. What Animal Intelligence Reveals About Human Stupidity. I'm Richard Feidler. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Richard Feidler. For more Conversations interviews, please go to the website, abc.net.au slash conversations. Miyuki Okiranta here. If you like stories that get at the heart of human experience, then I'd love it if you checked out my podcast, Earshot, where we eavesdrop on life as it's lived. I think I just held my dad's hand and just hoped that I was going somewhere safe. We're kicking off a new season and it's all about promises. Made, broken, kept and stretched. I couldn't promise that she would have a great life because you could never promise it to any child but I promised that she would have a life and that I would look after her and be there for that life. His funding's been stripped. Like, stripped. I wanted to be, metaphorically, the dying person in the room. I wanted the members of parliament who were gonna oppose this law to say it to my face. Just search for Earshot on the ABC Listen app and I'll catch you there. Love is great, but sometimes that's not enough. Promise me?